0: Good morning, Saints. If you heard this illustration or story once already during the course of this event, bear with me, please. For those of you who haven't heard it, I think you'll appreciate it. I was walking into the Cook County Jail in Chicago to do a chapel service on a Thursday night into Division 14, which is called Super Maximum Security. That's where they keep the highest bond and no bond men who have been charged with the most violent and heinous crimes. I have to go to the third floor, sign in at the security office. And uh, as I'm getting off the elevator, I spy a sergeant sitting at his desk I haven't seen in some time. They move the officers from division to division just to try to keep it as straight as possible. I realize this might be hard for you to believe, but there's a little bit of corruption in Cook County, Chicago. So... I haven't seen this officer for about a year at that point, And uh, I had known him for the previous 15 years at Cook County Jail. And every time I have seen this man, he has mocked me personally. He mocks Christianity and or he mocks God. So I know it's coming. I walk in the office. He stands up. He's a weightlifter, and when he stands up, he, sort of like, he, he likes to show off, sort of like a turkey spreading its wings. And when he stands up, he sticks his chest out, and he curls his arms in, and you can see the veins in his neck, and his head is shaved, and he's got a Fu Manchu. This guy is beautiful. <laughs> I walk in, and as expected, he stands up and says to two officers in the corner, he says, the Christians are here. Call out the lions. Just like that. I said, uh, Sergeant, I'd like to remind you it was 2,000 years ago the Roman Empire was feeding Christians to lions. And we have the incredible perspective of being able to look back over 2,000 years of recorded history and what do we see? I said, there are more Christians alive at this moment than the total number of people that made up the Roman Empire over its entire 500-year history, and the lions and the tigers are on the endangered species list. I said, we're not afraid of lions, bring them on. His mouth was open so wide he could have eaten a banana sideways. I tell you that story for two reasons. Number one, when you're right about God and you're right with God. You never have to be intimidated by the world, the flesh, or the devil himself. And it's okay to get excited about Jesus. Amen? About half of you agree. Good. The other reason I tell you that story is because that officer became my best friend at the jail. He began to go out of his way to facilitate our ministry, to bring more men to chapel. He started asking us questions about the Bible. And the last time we saw him, he asked us if we would pray for him. That's the power of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Salute. I'm going to answer a couple of really difficult questions over the course of my message. I'm going to answer the question, where did God come from? Another question I'm going to tackle is a question that has baffled thinking people for centuries. And oftentimes when I watch scholars and theologians debating Islam or Muslims, Imams or various other people, one of the things that they consistently stumble over is the doctrine or the idea of the triune nature of God, the Trinity. And usually they're forced to just say something like, well, it's a great mystery, and they never really nail it to my satisfaction. And I believe we're going to be able to do that for you here this morning. Another thing that I want to address is I've I've heard it implied numerous times that there's not a there's not a silver bullet, there's not a one size fits all, there's not a, a gospel presentation or a, a way to explain the gospel that's perfect in every situation. I gently, lovingly disagree. I, speaking the truth in love, the Bible says, uh, Psalm nineteen seven says, the law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul. There are so many other verses, we don't have time to go through them all. In fact, I have a half-day seminar on this topic, other verses that would come to mind would be uh, Romans 3.20, for by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What is the gospel? The gospel is a solution to a problem. And what is the problem? The problem is sin. It's universal, and sin, First John three four KJV, says sin is the transgression of the law. Galatians 3.24, the law is our school. Master to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. I could keep going on and on. I am of the unshakable conviction that God left us a perfect, systematic theology of evangelism that cannot be improved upon by any man or man made organization. The reason God doesn't change, after all, is because He's perfect. For God to change, He'd either have to get better or worse. That's impossible. He's perfect. And so is the gospel. All that said, let's pray. Father, in the name above every other name, the name of Jesus, the name that can clear out a room faster than any other name in the world, we come before you in humility. We thank you for giving us this day. We thank you for blessing us to sleep last night. This is the day that the Lord has made. We rejoice and we are glad in it. And in you, our creator, our sustainer, our redeemer, we love you. We thank you for our faith, more precious than gold, to appropriate the blood of the cross of Christ in our lives. In Jesus' mighty and matchless name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. I took my son to an introduction to gymnastics. It was a free thing, it was going to last for 90 minutes, so I took him there and I was all excited because I had a big, thick book, and I was going to be all alone for 90 minutes with my book. I'm reading my book, Joseph is getting his introduction to gymnastics, and a gentleman walks up to me in a deep, rich voice and says, "'Do you mind if I join you?' And in my peripheral vision, I could see that there were empty tables on either side of me. And I confess, my first thought was, gee, I really wish you'd sit somewhere else. (laughs) Forgetting that God's agenda is more important than mine, uh, I said, no, please, uh, of course, join me. He sits down and he's typing on the smallest computer I've ever seen in my life. I, I was fascinated by it, so I engaged him in conversation. And in the course of our conversation, it was apparent that this man was very articulate. So I couldn't resist. I said, "Uh, do you mind if I ask what you do for a living? He said, no, not at all. I'm a professor of philosophy and comparative religion at Rockford College. I'm a high school dropout and ex-convict. The still small voice of God says, this guy's an atheist. So I said, uh, I hope you don't mind, I'm just curious, uh, are you an atheist? He said, I am. What do you do? I said, I write Christian books. (laughs) I closed my book. I knew I was going to be in for a lively discussion so I said, uh, and by the way, the still small voice of God blows through my brain again and, and reminds me and says, remember, this man is blind. Which allowed me to maintain not only my composure, but my compassion. I don't want to win an argument. I want to win a soul. But as First Peter 3.15 says, I am ready to give a reason for the hope to every man who will ask me or challenge me in this case. So I said, Professor, may I ask you a question? He says, certainly, said the spider to the fly. I mean, (laughs) what did Jesus do when he talked to difficult people? He never argued doctrine. All he had to do was ask the right questions. So I said, Professor, try to imagine that nothing exists No sun, no moon, no stars, no galaxies, no elements such as carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, or oxygen. No such things as time, space, matter, or energy. There are no heavens, there is no God, there's nothing but nothing. If there ever was a time when nothing existed, then what would exist now? He said, well, nothing would exist now. I said, I agree with you, sir. If there ever was a time when nothing existed, then nothing would exist now. Therefore, we are forced to the inescapable conclusion that something must be eternal. And we only have two choices. And they're both incredulous, I admit. One would have us believe that there's an all-knowing, all-powerful, intelligent designer responsible for the wonders of creation and the complexities of human life And the other is nobody plus nothing equals everything. Either God is eternal and uncreated or matter is eternal and uncreated. There's no third option. Am I right so far, professor? He said, I agree. I said, well, when Einstein discovered the theory of relativity... His mathematical equation, math being a perfect science, demonstrated that time, space, and matter were not eternal but had a beginning, leaving Einstein staring in the face of God. And uh, incredibly, Einstein's theory matched the biblical account of creation perfectly, The very first verse in the Bible says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, that's time. God created, that's energy. The heavens, that's space. And the earth, that's matter. That's quite a coincidence, isn't it, professor? Well, his mouth was open, but nothing was coming out. I said, well... If I asked you to solve that in class, if I asked you that question in class, what would you say? He said, well, that would be a problem, wouldn't it? And I thought, well, it's a problem for you, not for me. (laughs) I want to change venues now. I want to take you now to a county jail in Rockford, Illinois, where I use that exact same introduction. But I went in a different direction with the professor. I want to take you in this direction now on this course. I started with that introduction, but I said, now for for people who really want to think this through, there are only five major religions in the world, and they are mutually exclusive. That is, the only thing that they have in common is the fact that they have almost nothing in common. Just consider the nature of God. Islam insists on the strictest form of Unitarian monotheism and says that the doctrine of the Trinity is polytheistic blasphemy, a damnable heresy, and an obvious contradiction. Christianity says that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the three distinct persons make up the one God. Hinduism says there are 330 million gods. One of the reasons I'm not a Hindu is because I have trouble remembering names as it is. (laughs) Buddhism says there's no god at all and Judaism rejects all of the above. So logically, they're either all wrong or one is right and the others are wrong. Going back to Einstein's theory of relativity, time, space, and matter. By the way, time, space, and matter, Einstein's relativity is still the basis, the foundation of all science. If time, space, and matter is not constant, then any scientific experimentation would be meaningless. So, Einstein's theory of relativity is time, space, and matter, which is a trinity of trinities. Time is a trinity. The past, the present, and the future. The past is not the present. The present is not the future. The future is not the past. One is not the other. All are part of the same. None could exist without the other, and yet each one is distinct. Space. We live in a three-dimensional realm. Height, width, depth. Height is not width. Width is not depth. Depth is not height. One is not the other. All are part of the same. None could exist without the other, and yet each one is distinct. Matter, made up of atoms. Atoms are made up of three primary components, protons, neutrons, and electrons. Protons are not neutrons. Neutrons are not electrons. Electrons are not protons. One is not the other. All are part of the same. If you want to have a complete atom, none could exist without the other, and yet each one is distinct. Time, space, matter. In fact, almost all of life as we know it is triune in nature, time, space, matter, the human body, the human mind, earth, wind, fire, water. There are many more. Let's just look at a couple. The human body. First Thessalonians 5, Paul says, May your spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He uses three distinct words in that text. In the Greek, it's soma, suke, numa. Your soma is not your suke. Your suke is not your numa. Your numa is not your soma. One is not the other. All are part of the same. None could exist without the other, and yet each one is distinct. The human brain is the most complex thing known to science. It is estimated that the human brain could make as many as 120 trillion connections throughout the body. The brain houses the mind. The mind is a trinity. The mind, the will, and the emotions your mind your intellect is not the same as your will not the same as your emotions not the same as your mind one is not the other all are part of the same none could exist without the other and yet each one is distinct let's just do one more one molecule of water we all know is made up of h2o is two atoms hydrogen one atom of oxygen interestingly if you separate hydrogen from oxygen Pure hydrogen is highly flammable, and pure oxygen is highly flammable. But if you put the two together in a two-to-one ratio, you have a third substance with which you can use to extinguish a fire. Can you rationally understand that? Shake your heads like this. No, man. I have no idea how that works. Well, fortunately, the grand designer, God Almighty, does. I have just demonstrated for you that the idea of the triune nature of God, three being one, is not an unfathomable contradiction, but there are triunities all around us. I'm going with the God of the Bible. How about you? Buddha said, I'm a teacher in search of truth, and Jesus said, I am the truth. Confucius said, I never claim to be holy, and God, Jesus said, which one of you convicts me of sin? Mohammed said, unless God covers me with a cloak of mercy, I have no hope. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. None of these other men ever claimed to be God. They all said, God is this way, go this way. And Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. I'm going with Jesus. How did we get the Bible? Holy men of God spoke, or spake, if you like the King James. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. But please consider this. You may have never considered this before. I still can't get over it. There's one part of the Bible that God so wanted to emphasize. Consider this. Only once, from Genesis to Revelation. Did God the Father touch down on this planet in his omnipotent state? In Exodus chapter 20, it says, God descended from heaven onto Mount Sinai in a thick, dark cloud. Inside the cloud was a consuming fire. It descends upon Sinai, which is a solid granite rock mountain. We know where the real Mount Sinai is. It's in modern uh, modern day Saudi Arabia. Galatians tells us Sinai is in Arabia, and uh, it says the whole mountain began to quake, and it says it was being the mountain was being consumed, and the smoke was rising from Sinai all the way up to heaven. It says there was a trumpet blast that got louder and louder and louder. And as the whole mountain was shaking, the eternal self-existent one spoke audibly to his people. Only time from Genesis to Revelation that he spoke to the entire nation. He was preceded by an entourage of sight and sound that was so dreadful. It was so frightening when it was over. Exodus 20 says right at the end of the chapter, the people said to Moses, if he ever wants to talk to us again, you go talk to him and tell us what he said. Because one more manifestation like that and we will die. Why would a loving God almost scare his own people to death with a demonstration like this? You read the end of the chapter and it says, in order that the fear of the Lord would remain with the people so that they might not sin. You can't commit a sin outside the Ten Commandments, folks. Not only did God bring this part of the Bible personally, he didn't entrust this to the apostles and the prophets through the Holy Spirit. He brought this part himself personally. And not only that, but Exodus 31 says he wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger. And not only did he write it with his own finger, it's speaking figuratively, of course. He doesn't have a finger, God, is spirit. But God personally etched those commandments in stone. He's trying to tell us something. They were meant to be understood and obeyed in perpetuity. It's the only part of the Bible that is written on every man's heart. Romans 2:15 says the law is written on every man's heart. Every man whether he'll admit it or not knows it's wrong to murder, it's wrong to steal, it's wrong to lie, it's wrong to have another man's wife. Every man knows that. Because God put it there. God doesn't believe in atheists, which is proof the atheist doesn't exist. No man's going to stand before God with any excuse for ignoring or denying him because of three reasons. That's the title of my message this morning, God's Three Revelations of Himself. When I have the opportunity to share the gospel with someone, I always start at Sinai before I take them to the cross. A man has to know what sin is before he can cry out for the Savior. To tell a man he's a sinner without telling him what sin is is like telling a man he's under arrest without telling him what he's charged with. But when you tell him what sin is... The Holy Spirit has maximum leverage to do what only the Holy Spirit can do. John sixteen eight, When he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. It's not about the age of the earth. It's not about what happened to the dinosaurs. The issue is sin. Why did Jesus come to this planet? Matthew 1.21, they shall call his name Yeshua, which means God is salvation. They shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. Amen. I was in my study one day and the phone rang. It was a window salesman that I was expecting to come by later in the afternoon. We had a badly damaged window that needed to be replaced. I was in my study studying, and uh, he says, "Uh, "I'm I'm ahead of schedule. I'm in the neighborhood. Is it okay if I come by now?" I said, "Sure." A few minutes later, kids were little then, and I hear the kids looking out the window. They said, "He's here! He's here!" (laughs) So I look out my window, and he gets out of his car, and he's he's standing there, and he's looking at our house for a minute, and. My theory is he's reading our house like any good salesman. If he can learn a little bit about us, perhaps he can build or establish a little bit of rapport and perhaps improve his chances of making a sale. Nothing wrong with that, just good salesmanship. Well, at the time, there was a cross in the window about a foot and a half high with Italian Christmas lights outlining the cross, which were on twenty-four-seven. And the bumper sticker on the car in the driveway said, study for your final exam, read the Bible. So our house is real easy to read. I'm not making this up. I come out the side gate, I open the gate, I look at him, he looks at me, and the first words out of his mouth he says, my dad was a Christian. Are you here from the window company? He said, and my sister was a missionary. I said, you are here from the window company. He said, oh, yes, I'm from the window company. He starts telling me all about his dad and his sister. I enjoy a good sales presentation, so I hear him out. After about five minutes, he comes up for air, and I said, Bob, can we look at the window? Right, the window. He looks at the window, he comes back with his numbers, and uh, he starts telling me more about his dad and his sister. I said, Bob, you've been telling me a lot about your dad and your sister, but may I ask you a personal question? He said, sure. I said, where do you stand with God? He said, oh, I'm fine. <laughs> I got excited because I had a live one standing right in front of me in my own yard. A golden opportunity. Oh, you're fine with God. Good, good, good. So if you died tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? He said, I'd go to heaven. I said, on what basis? He said, I'm, I'm, I'm a good person. I said, well, I, I suppose if God compared you to Adolf Hitler, you'd probably compare very favorably. But is that the standard God is going to use? Is he going to compare you to the worst person who's ever lived and say, well, compared to Adolf, you look pretty good, Bob. Come on in. And even Bob had enough discernment to say, well, I I don't think so. I said, well, what standard is God going to use, Bob? And he said, well, I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. And that's when I really got excited. I said, Bob, I'm a chaplain at Cook County Jail in Chicago. There's 10,000 men locked up in that jail, and they're all charged with a crime. If they're found guilty, they will be judged according to the law. By the way, I also, I said, do you see your need of God's forgiveness? And he he gave the classic answer. This goes, 90% of the time, it goes like this, word for word. Do you see your need of God's forgiveness? He said, no, I've never murdered anybody. I've been a chaplain for 15 years at the jail. 10,000 men, they're all charged with a crime. If they're found guilty, they will be judged according to the standard. They'll be judged according to the law. I said, Bob, do you want to know how you can know the Ten Commandments were written by God and not by man? If man wrote them, there'd be Ten Commandments and a thousand amendments. (laughs) The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. But in order to obey, and by the way, stated positively, that means you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. That would mean that you would love God perfectly from the day you're born till the day you die. You'd never put anything before God. You'd love him supremely. No mere man has ever loved God like that. And if the greatest commandment in all the Bible is to love God with all of your heart, then the greatest sin cannot be murder. The greatest sin surely must be not to love the God who created you more than the things he created. Which brings us to the second commandment. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. You're not supposed to make a God with your hands or with your mind. Now, I got this from Ray Comfort, who endorsed my first book, so we've shared some ideas together. But I like what he said. I've experienced this many times. I've had people tell me, my God is a God of love. He would never send anyone to hell. I agree with them. Their God never would send anyone to hell because their God doesn't exist. He's a God made in their own image. The God of the Bible is a consuming fire who has a passion for justice and holiness and righteousness and truth. Who will by no means clear the guilty, but will hold every man accountable for every idle word that he speaks. The third commandment is not to take the name of the Lord in vain. When a man hits his thumb with a hammer... He wants to express how he feels, and he doesn't feel very good, so he usually takes the name God or the name Jesus, and he brings it down to the level of a four-letter curse word to express anger and disgust. I have been privileged beyond belief to have sailed the seven seas. I've traveled all over the world, and I've never heard of a man hitting his thumb with a hammer and screaming out the names Allah, Buddha, Zoroaster, Confucius, or any of the rest of them. You know why? There's no power in any of those names. The name of Jesus can clear out a room faster than any other name in the world. Why is that? Just the name, Jesus, brings the conviction of sin. The darkness hates the light. Because the light exposes the darkness. And just to use his name publicly. I've seen grown men. As we walk through this presentation. Not to take the name of the Lord in vain. To set one day aside to rest. To honor your father and your mother. And by the way. The reason our nation and our world is in trouble. Has nothing to do with gangs or guns or violence or corruption in business or government. Those are only symptoms of the real problem. The real problem is the breakdown of the home because we have failed, and I don't mean we, the church, by and large, but I mean speaking of the world and much of the church, unfortunately. We have failed to train our children to love God with all of their hearts and to love their neighbors as themselves. Abraham Lincoln said, The strength of a nation lies in the homes of its people. As goes the family, so goes the nation. Thou shalt not murder, but Jesus said, If you're even angry with your brother, You're guilty of breaking this law. Call him empty-headed or a fool, and you're in danger of judgment, the fires of hell. What he's talking about there is unforgiveness. Murder begins in the heart as unforgiveness. The number one condition of people who are instituted into mental institutions in the United States is anger. And that anger is based on unforgiveness. If you, church, have unforgiveness in your heart towards anybody this morning for anything that's been done to you, you are not free. You are enslaved, you are in bondage, and you are not in a position to enjoy the fullness of joy and the abundant living and the significance, and the fruit, and the power that God purchased for you on the cross. As long as you have unforgiveness in your heart, you are not free. But when you forgive that person, you're the one that gets set free. Amen? Amen. The seventh commandment is, thou shalt not commit adultery. The most politically incorrect statement that's ever been made in history. Thou shalt not commit adultery, but if you even look upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery already in your heart. Saints, I have, and I said, by the way, Bob, that would include pornography, another very politically incorrect word, that would include pornography, etc. Bob was doing just fine till we got to that point. Like the rich young ruler, he thought he'd kept all those things since he was a youth. But when we got to that one, that's when we broke eye contact. That's when Bob's hands went in his pockets and he took a step back and looked down on the ground and started playing with the dirt with his shoe, wishing he was anywhere but talking to me. He forgot he was a window salesman. He forgot what the commissions were. He was having an out-of-body experience. What was really happening The Holy Spirit was convicting him of sin and righteousness and judgment. I I could see the Spirit of God working right in front of my eyes. Saints, as God is my witness, by using the law lawfully, 1 Timothy one eight says, The law is good if one uses it lawfully. By using the law lawfully, I have seen at this point, specifically with men, particularly with men, right at this point, I have seen grown men break out into a cold sweat. I've seen grown men begin to literally shake and perspire profusely as they were looking into the mirror of God's law perhaps for the first time in their lives. And I'm saying it gently and lovingly. This is real spiritual warfare. As soon as you mention the name Jesus, you're engaged in spiritual warfare, which is what we're supposed to be doing. I walked him through the eighth and the ninth commandment, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie. By the way, many people say to me, I've never stolen anything. If you look up the word steal in the the dictionary, you'll discover about 50 different ways you can steal. You can steal by not working at work. If you're wasting time at work, you're stealing from your boss. Thou shalt not lie, you know how many lies you 'd have to tell to be a liar? The same number of times Adam and Eve had to eat the forbidden fruit to be found worthy to be found in rebellion against God and worthy of death, justifiably so he told them not to do that. Thou shalt not covet, oh that doesn 't seem like such a big deal, really. Well, if I understand scriptures correctly, covetousness, it was Lucifer who coveted the glory that belonged to God alone. He wanted to be worshipped. He wanted to exalt himself above the throne of God. Seems to me it was covetousness that was the first sin on earth as well when Adam and Eve coveted the knowledge of good and evil because they wanted to be like God. They bought into the lie. Covetousness. In uh, Colossians chapter 3, it says covetousness is idolatry. Idolatry is spiritual adultery, an abomination to God. Spiritual adultery. Yeah, James 4.4 4 says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. When I shared my testimony Wednesday night, um, I, I mentioned that I like to share the gospel in context. And I believe that one of the reasons that so many in the church are so powerless is because they have no concept of understanding the scriptures in context. The very first verse in the New Testament says this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The very first verse in Matthew 1.1 1, 1, says if you're starting here, you're going to have to go back to Genesis because you're not going to know who Abraham is. There's no way of knowing the significance of the very first verse in the New Testament apart from Genesis. That verse tells us many things. Among them are God always keeps his promises and the Bible is one book. You know, our young people are leaving our churches even before they get to college at high school age because they're saying the church is boring and irrelevant. Church should not be boring. The, the Bible is the most fascinating book in the world. <clears throat> and apart out of context, which is what Satan loves to do, take the word out of context. Understood out of context, that verse is not understandable and it seems, appears to be dry and Boring. But when you understand Matthew 1.1 in the context of the Abrahamic covenant, Matthew 1.1 explodes with excitement. God always keeps his promises. Context is king in understanding and applying the word of God and being effective as evangelists. I've heard it said over the course of this week that there are many dangers that the church faces. In my opinion, the greatest danger that the church faces is not being the church of Jesus Christ and failing to obey the Great Commission and showing up fruitless. Some of the many verses you won't hear in churches today, you, and I say this in love, I say this with the hope of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, if this applies to you, not to condemn you but to remind you of what the word of God says and means. But when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, it's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Major problem with that verse. First of all, salt doesn't lose its flavor. Salt is a stable compound. We have salt in our kitchen from 10,000 feet Uh, above sea level from the Himalayan mountains, I believe that salt got there from Genesis chapter 6 when God flooded the world. I don't know how else that salt could have gotten up there. Salt doesn't lose its flavor. Am I saying there's a mistake in the Bible? Absolutely not. Well, didn't Jesus create salt? Wouldn't he know more about salt than anybody else? Well, of course he does. The problem is in the translation from the original language to the English. It's a poor translation. It should have been translated. If the salt is not being used for what it was designed for, it's good for nothing. But to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. There are so many of these in the New Testament. The parable of the talents. One man is given five. He shows up with ten. One man is given two. He makes two more and has four. But the one is given one. And I think those talents represent the gospel, the most valuable thing he could have entrusted us with, the, the, the message of redemption to a lost and dying world. How many people who name the name of Christ are going to show up on that day having hidden their talent in the ground? And how do I know this applies to so many? Because George Barna and the Southern Baptist Convention and others, according to the best research, 97% of people who identify themselves as Christians, evangelical Christians, have never even attempted to lead another person to Christ. And 70% of that, 97% think it's wrong to interfere with another person's belief system. So they don't believe the Bible at all then. Because if that's not your worldview, you have the wrong worldview. As Walter Martin was fond of saying, you can be wrong about a lot of things, but if you're wrong about who Jesus is and what it means to believe in him, you're going to be wrong for eternity. God left us a perfect systematic theology of evangelism. The New Testament bears this out. I, I wish I had more time, but uh, let's just do a couple of quick ones. Matthew 19, the rich young ruler. What must I do to be saved? You know the commandments. Uh, he starts with number. He starts with number six. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie. He omits the tenth and goes back to five and says, honor your father and your mother. He omits the tenth commandment. That's exactly what he did, yeah. Why would he do that? Well, to whom is he speaking? He's speaking to the rich young ruler. And what is his problem? Covetousness. What's the tenth commandment? Thou shalt not covet. Rather than saying to the rich young ruler, thou shalt not covet, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Then come and follow me. He applied the text directly to his heart. He wasn't showing him how to get saved. He was showing him that he needed to be saved. This guy thought he'd kept the law since he was a child. He thought he was a... He's the good moral person. He was guilty of the first commandment, no gods before me, the second, idolatry, and the tenth, I shall not covet. Jesus used the Ten Commandments to show him that he needed to get saved. Can anybody know more about evangelism than Jesus? I don't think so. John 4, the woman at the well, the flaming sinner. We got the the good moral person, now we have the flaming... There's only two kinds of people out in the world, brothers, the saints and the aints. And of the aints, there are four varieties. The good moral person, the flaming sinner, the the religionist who thinks he's right with God because of his religion, whatever religion that might be. And then the person who's under condemnation. The woman at the well. Woman, give me a drink. Uh, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, I can't believe you're even talking to me because Jews don't talk to Samaritans and I'm a woman on top of it. He says, well, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd be asking me for a drink. And she says, well, this is a deep well and you don't even have a bucket. He says, well, he who drinks of the water that you give shall thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give shall never thirst again, but it shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And she says, give me some of that water. This is hard work. That's what it says. This is hard work. He says, "Go." he's talking about the Ruach HaKodesh. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. She's talking about H2O. He says, go call your husband. She says, I have no husband. He says, You are correct, madam. You've had five. And the man you are living with now is not your husband. And she brilliantly comes back with, Uh, I perceive that thou art a prophet. (laughs) What was he doing? Before we could share, before we could share the spirit, before she could get saved, she needed to repent. She needed to acknowledge her sin. So rather than quoting, thou shalt not commit adultery, he asked an adulterous person to do something an adulterous person couldn't do. Go call your husband. He applied the text directly to her heart. She, she goes back to town and says, come see a man who told me all I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? And they all come out. The fields are white unto harvest, but the laborers are few. That is the problem still today. The laborers are few. The fields are white they're ripe. There are so many of these. Nicodemus comes by night. We know you're from God. No man could do the things you're doing unless God is with him. You must be born again. Why does he say that? Well, you have to understand the mindset of the person to whom he's speaking. Nicodemus thinks, because he's a Jew, because he was born to a Jewish father and Jewish mother, born under the law, trained in the law, now he's a a rabbi and now a Pharisee, he thinks that his salvation is in the law. He thinks he's an in-law when in fact he's an outlaw. and the very law that he thinks will save him is the very law that will condemn him. He hadn't read Romans 3.20 yet. For by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The power of Sinai has never diminished. Sinai is still shaking. And for those who know how to apply it and do so, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things. Enter into the joy of your master. Chapter 6 of my book, I don't have it here with me, but chapter 6 of my book, Jesus Christ the Master Evangelist, is nothing but quotes from the greatest minds in the history of the church who understood how to use the law lawfully. And they are fascinating quotes. Martin Luther said that's the first duty of the gospel preacher, to to declare God's law. Spurgeon said, open the spirituality of the law as our Lord did. And by this method, many sinners will be pricked in their hearts. There are so many more of these. Uh, is it Luke 16 uh, where we have Lazarus and the rich man? There's a great gulf fixed between us. No man can cross to get you a, a, a drink of water. Well, could you send somebody to go tell my five brothers so they don't have to come to this place of torment? And the answer comes back to have Moses and the prophets. The prophets were Moses' enforcers. They have Moses 1500 years after Moses is dead. They have Moses. Let them hear, you know, let them hear Moses and the prophets. No, but if someone comes back, surely they'll repent. And the answer comes back if they won't hear Moses. Neither would they believe though someone were to rise from the dead. The Word of God says there is no more compelling argument than the argument. Of Moses, that's Mount Sinai, that's the Ten Commandments. Matthew Henry, the great English commentator from the 19th century, in commenting on that story, said, Only a fool would think any method of conviction better than the one God has chosen and ordained. A.W. Pink's my favorite, but I, I need to move on. There's a book out there called God, the Final Frontier. It's only 99 pages. I taught this at a huge Bible church recently, and in the Bible study prior to that, super intellectuals there, one of them said to me, you explained in 10 pages what it took a very famous author to explain in 370 pages. Uh, Guys, You'll like this because it's got 40 pictures in it. (laughs) It's real easy to read. The Trinity, God's three witnesses. In fact, I need to close with that. The title of my message was God's three revelations. Well, God has revealed himself in three ways. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, a perfect correlation between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is Father, creation. Father, Son, that would be the Word of God, living and written. That's the Bible and Jesus Christ. And of course, the Holy Spirit would be, Romans 2.15, conscience. The moral law is written on every man's heart. Before I share this story, I've got a one-liner from a book that Dwight recommended, which has a quote from a book that I read when I was just a babe in Christ by Francis Schaefer from The Great Evangelical Disaster. Just one sentence. He said, Here is the Great Evangelical Disaster, the failure of the evangelical world to stand for truth. The silence from the church is deafening. While the world goes to hell. How much do you have to hate a person not to share the gospel with them? You know, by the way, I I said that there were four people. The good moral person, the religionist, that was Nicodemus. uh, The flaming sinner, that was the woman at the well, but there's a fourth person. If you meet somebody who's under condemnation like the woman that was caught in the very act of adultery he didn't go he didn't use the law with her she was already condemned if you meet somebody who's under condemnation they don't need more condemnation heaped on them that's what the law does a man has to be condemned before he can be converted but to her she said where are those who condemn you see he could, obviously knowing her heart and her mind No Q&A was necessary. She knew she was condemned. She did not try to justify herself. Where are those who condemn you, Lord? And she said, there are none. And he said, neither do I condemn you. What? Go and sin no more. The law points us to Christ, and Christ points us right back to the law and says, now walk in holy obedience, not to get saved, but because you are saved. James 1.25 and 2.10 refers to the Ten Commandments as the perfect law of liberty. One more, and then I'll give you my closing story. I love the law so much. In the New Testament, there's so much of this people have read but never seen before. I thought this at Trinity Seminary, and I actually had a professor say, I've read those verses in Romans a hundred times and never saw this before. You're absolutely right. I'm not right. The word of God is right. Romans 13. What does it say? Romans 13, 8 through 10. Oh, no man anything except to love him. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For the law says thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal. If there's any other commandment, it's this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Here's the Holy Spirit using the word law and love in the same breath. And there's lots of them. Many of us have been told the law is a bad thing. Well, if it's improperly used, it can be. See, Christ in a very real way is still in between two thieves. We've got antinomianism on one side of the cross, which means there's no law at all. I've heard preachers say there's no law in the New Testament. Well, hangeth thou in there, brethren? Because I have showed it. I have showed it to thee. There's plenty of it in there, and a lot more. You got antinomianism on one side of the cross, and you got legalism on the other side of the cross, saying that you can add anything to your salvation by what you do or don't do. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, plus nothing yet. Not a zip, zilch, zero. Our changed lives, our changed behaviors, changed vocabularies, changed hearts, changed minds are the result of our salvation, never the cause of it. But you've still got the legalizers, the Judaizers, they'll always be there. So here's my closing story on God's three witnesses. And this book is is a $10 donation. We don't sell these books. If you can't afford to make a donation and you want this book, somebody's already paid for it. Take one. But if you can afford to make a donation, well, we give them to prisoners and college students and pastors in third world countries and anybody who can't afford one for free. There's a smaller version designed to be given away. I don't have enough for everybody, but it's 10 for, it's 10 of them for 20 bucks. So here's what I want to leave you with. And forgive me for those who have heard this before. But I was in a Mexican restaurant in Chicago with a dozen volunteers from our prison ministry. We were having lunch. We were kind of loud. Because we're having a good time. We're laughing and we're kind of loud. And I was actually a little bit embarrassed because I'm actually an introvert. I'd rather stay home and read a book than go to a party. If that makes me an introvert, I don't know. We'll have to ask Dwight. He knows all this stuff. Four guys walk in the restaurant and they have a very dark countenance very dark countenance they sit right next to us there's only four of them there's 12 of us and they're louder than we are and they're speaking in a very foreign language and my wife who is as bold as a lion my wife is the only person i know that makes me feel lukewarm my wife is as bold as a lion and she turns around and says in a very sweet tone of voice she says excuse me pardon me uh, i'm just curious uh, are you speaking farsi And they said, yes, we are. How did you know? And she said, well, I come from an Armenian and an Assyrian background, and I recognize Farsi when I hear it. Usually, when an Assyrian meets another Assyrian, not Syrian, Assyrian, it's as if Middle Eastern music comes out of the sky and they start dancing around the room with the handkerchiefs because they don't meet too many of their own kind. Well, these guys weren't interested in dancing with us. They turned right back around, and my wife turned right back around, and she looked both ways, and she leaned, uh, bent down just a little bit, and she whispered, and she said, They're Muslims. I said, No. She said, Yeah. So without even thinking, which is usually when I'm at my best, I said, excuse me, pardon me, I'm just curious, are you guys Muslims? One of them says yes, the second one says he's undecided, the third one will not address me. And the fourth one says he's a Darwinian evolutionist, he's a socialist, he's a Nazi, he's a follower of Adolf Hitler. Wow. I ain't never met one of them before. <laughs> he starts monologuing the whole restaurant. We're in Chicago. They're dead silent. They don't know, what, they don't know what's going to happen. And this guy's monologuing about all the glories of being a Nazi. So I get up from the table, and I put on my sport coat, and I walk around this long table up to their table, and he remains sitting. And I approach him, and my body language is open and peaceful. It's quite apparent I mean no harm. And I walk right up to him. And I said, excuse me, sir. There are three reasons why no man will stand before God with any excuse for ignoring or denying him. The first is found in Psalm 19, one through 3. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament, the sky, shows his handiwork. It says, night after night they speak. And there's no language where their voice is not heard. In other words, all a thinking person has to do is take a good look at the sun and the moon and the stars and the life cycle of the planet that we live on and your own human body, which the Bible says is fearfully and wonderfully made to know. That anything so complex, anything so perfectly designed and well-balanced as is our world could in no way have made itself. And the Bible says only the fool would say in his heart, there is no God. And I remember thinking to myself, as I'm talking, I'm on autopilot, I remember thinking to myself, did you just call this Nazi a fool? I said, the second reason no man will stand before God with any excuse is the word of God, living and written. That's the Bible and Jesus Christ. I said, I can prove the Bible is true with one word. Israel. 2,500 years ago, God speaks through the prophet Ezekiel, chapters 36 through 39, and says to the world, Want to see my hand? Just keep your eyes on Israel. These things were written so that the nations may know that I am the Lord. After all, only he can declare the end from the beginning, right? So... You know the prophecy, the land will, uh, the Jews, because of her sin, uh, God will allow her enemies to destroy that nation. They will run to the four corners of the earth and that land will remain desolate for a long, long, long period of time. And in the latter days, He will bring them back as a nation. I said, all you have to do is look at history. In A.D. 70, when Titus and the Romans sacked Jerusalem, that's exactly what happened. They remained without a homeland for nearly 1,900 years. And after Hitler was finally stopped, and I remember thinking to myself, did you just say that to this Nazi? After Hitler was finally stopped, the Jews began to trickle back into the land, and on May 14, 1948, Israel was recognized as a sovereign state, precisely as the Bible predicted. I said, one of the reasons I'm a Christian is because I've read the book and nobody can guess that good. And I said, then you got Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the most famous person who's ever lived. We live in the 21st century because 21 centuries ago, a real historical person came to this planet who had such a profound impact on the world by what he said and by what he did. The world marks time by his birth and by his death. Because three, if that's for me, please take a message. We live in the 21st century because 21 centuries ago a real historical person came to this planet who had such a profound impact on the world by what he said and by what he did. The world marks time by his death because three days after he was crucified, he raised himself from the dead by his own power. Nobody ever did that before. I said, Napoleon said of Jesus, I know men, and I tell you, Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person, there's no possible term of comparison. Caesar, Alexander, Charlemagne, and I have all founded empires. But on what did we base our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire on love. And today, millions are willing to die for him. And I said, the third reason, and I took a half step closer, and I bent down just a little bit more. I'm eyeball to eyeball, belly to belly with this Nazi. And I said, the third reason is right inside your chest. Romans 2.15 says, the law is written on every man's heart. Every man, from the beginning of time to the end of the world, whether or not he's ever seen a Bible or even heard of Jesus, Knows it's wrong to murder, it's wrong to steal, it's wrong to lie, it's wrong to have another man's wife. Every man knows there's a God in heaven because the sun and the moon and the stars declare his glory. And you know it's true, and I know you know it's true, and God knows you know it's true. Isn't that true? (laughs) He jumps up out of his seat, smiling from ear to ear. He takes my hand, he shakes my hand and says, Man, if I was going to choose a religion, I'd choose Christianity. And he shakes my hand. I said, Honey, you got the Muslim tracks? Give me the Muslim tracks. My wife's got a purse about this big, weighs 50 pounds. It's got 14 different tracks in 18 languages, all in alphabetical order. Give me the Muslim tracks. I never shared the gospel with them. All I did was tell them why we believe. The gospel was in the track. And if you want to know what was in the track, you have to invite me back. We Give each one of these guys a little gospel track. And they each took it. I sat down. I finished my lunch. I got up. I paid for our lunch. And I said to the gal, we want to pay for that table too. And we bought these guys their lunch and left. Two years later, I'm speaking at a men's conference in Lakeland, Florida. I share that story at the conference, and a guy waiting to talk to me at the end of the line, I finally get to him, he says, you're not going to believe this, man. He said, I just heard some guy sharing his testimony at a church in Detroit, Michigan, who said he was a former Nazi, and some guy shared the gospel with him in a Mexican restaurant in Chicago. It's got to be you! Heavenly Father, in the mighty and the matchless name of Jesus Christ, we thank you that your word is perfect. We thank you that it is sufficient for everything that we need to live fruitful lives, to bring glory to you. And Father, I pray that you bless each and every person in this room. I pray peace unto their home, peace to their hearts, and I pray that you give each and every one of us a good, positive burden to learn how to give an answer to every man who would ask us why we have this hope with gentleness and yet with conviction. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor, thank you for having me to this conference. God bless you all.